When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. We're very excited. Had a fantastic week this week. And we've got a fantastic guest for you too. Alex, talk to us. Who have we got? Oh my God, you almost sound awake. Almost. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, so last night was my birthday party thrown by Alina and... I would like to apologise to the wonderful Simon Elliott in advance for the fact that we are not in good shape today. <laughs> Sorry. Well, I'm wearing, I'm wearing a very bright blue uh, bandana to help keep you keep you both awake. I'm such. You know what? You are the perfect guest for this. One, because you already know us, so you know like uh, that we're idiots. Two, you are brilliant at just walking yourself through an interview we could just wind you up and let you go, and yeah, like, go for it. with the most love in the world you know if we fall asleep it's not because <laughs> you're dull do you know uh, what i might start doing instead of asking questions i'm just going to throw words and then <laughs> wait, just wait, work wait. with that word okay let's say uh, simon it's been on before twice before actually and he's wonderful he turns out an immense array of really interesting stuff on uh ancient rome and i just learned that he is president of the society of ancients which sounds like the best thing ever uh it should we explain it or should we just let people have that title and think you're cool uh, Society of Ancients is it's it's like the representative body for people who play toy soldiers in the ancient period. So for for a grown man of my age, fifty seven, that's going back when I was about eight or nine years old and buying a box of Erfix Romans and a box of Erfix Ancient Britons, and then everything rolls out from that. So basically, uh, I'm actually <laughs> randomly at the same time as being the president of the Society of Ancients, I'm also the national champion at war gaming with one of the most popular sets of rules as well. So this year, I've got double bubble. I'm the I'm, I'm the king king toy soldier player in ancient period by the sounds of it. That is amazing. Boys never grow up; their toys just no. get bigger. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I I never grow up. I can promise you, I never grow up. It's a trap. 
Um, should we ask you some questions about this? This new book, right? I, this sounds argumentative. Alina's written this question and it sounds really confrontational. Simon, <laughs> is this just another book about the chronological history of Rome? It's not, is it? Tell us what we should expect. when we. Con- what is the book called, first of all? Uh, it's, it's called uh, Legacy of Rome. It's published by the History Press. It's coming out at the end of this month. I've got two books coming out at the end of this month. I've got Roman Warriors, which is a book of the amazing artwork by the fabulous uh, ancient artist Graham Sumner, and I've done the words for it, uh, which is a big coffee table-sized book. And then I've got this book of my own, which is Legacy of Rome. And to, to your point, no, it's not just pure chronological history. Most of my books actually are sort of meat and potatoes, chronological histories of, of sorts. But this one isn't, because what I wanted to do uh, was explore the threads which come through to us today from the world of ancient Rome. So there are lots of things all around us which give us a direct link to the world of ancient Rome, which m- many people don't know about. And so, so the approach I took was to chunk up the Roman Empire into geographic regions, so yeah. um, the Wild West Britannia, as it were, uh, the imperial centre, which I call Gaul and Spain and Italy, um, the Danube frontier, the East and North Africa. And within each one, I pull three or four themes out where I think there is a direct link from then to now. Uh, so do you know what? that I'm so much more excited about this concept than I'm capable of sounding today um it's a really good idea for a book Alina has had the best time haven't you putting the questions together for this yeah so I actually you know you start off with Britain and I got into this book and I'm reading along and I'm like wow hold on there are parts of London that I've just walked past my whole life and I've no absolute clue, considering, by the way, I also studied ancient history at university and I should know this shit, <laughs> that I've just walked past. And they're remnants of the Roman Empire. They're, they're everywhere. I mean, can you talk us through some of these places? Because I, and I've read it and I'm assuming some of our Londoners or even people that come to London will be able to check some of these places out. Absolutely. So one of the things I do, actually, I do tours of Roman London for a couple of um, travel companies. One of them is Andante Travels. And, and um, the first thing to point out is actually Roman London is not that big, okay? So uh, Roman London is basically the city of London. So the modern city of London, the square mile, that's Roman London. Founded around AD 50, and there are still many things you can see today which date back to that period. So you can go to the Museum of London before it closes uh, towards the end of this year, uh, and then it's going to move to Smithfield. That's got an amazing Roman collection. You've got the... Um, uh, amphitheatre which is beneath the Guildhall Library which is all laid out that's beautiful and you can go and walk where the gladiators fought in Roman London literally uh, you've got the Mithraeum off the Walbrook which is a temple um, to Mithras uh, which is within the Bloomberg building and again you can go down three or four stories and suddenly you're in a Roman temple exactly where it was built exactly where people worshipped in the Roman period you can go along Lower Thames Street and there's something called the Billingsgate Bathhouse which is a Roman bathhouse beneath the street all these things are there for you to go and see well, well, well the, the thing i really love though is actually the land walls in london so the walls in london there are sections you can see uh, for example near tower hill tube station um, the land walls were built by the great roman emperor septimius severus uh, in response to the british governor who was called clodius albinus good british name albinus who usurped uh, at the beginning of the third century and um uh, Severus uh, 
had to fight a titanic battle against Claudius Albanus to win. Uh, this is the battle, it's AD 197, Battle of Lugdunum. And he only just won, literally only just won the battle. And in winning this battle, he brought Britain, which had usurped with the governor, back into the imperial fold. And then to send a message to the Londoners that you better behave or else, because your governor had usurped against me, he sent his own generals to Britain at the end of the of about eighty one nine nine, uh, with instructions to basically build the land wall around Roman London. So it wasn't built to keep people out. It was built as a message saying, if I can monumentally build this, think what's going to happen to you if you misbehave again. And the beauty there is you have a land wall built by a Roman Emperor Septimius Severus, who's from North Africa, by the way, um, in response to a British usurpation, which the land wall later became the medieval wall, and the medieval wall encloses the square mile. So the square mile, the city of London, is geographically demarcated by a wall built by a Roman Emperor from North Africa. Okay, how many times was Britain invaded um, and how many of these times were actually successful? There were four Roman invasions of Britain. So you had the first invasion uh, and the second invasion by Julius Caesar in 55 and 54 BC, uh, which weren't really invasions. They were more like reconnaissance in in, in force. Um, I don't think Caesar had any intention actually to overwinter in Britain. And certainly his first invasion of Britain in 55 BC was his worst military campaign ever, actually, because the planning was all very poor. Uh, the second campaign, he did bring the British leaders in the southeast to heel and force the peace on them so he could claim a victory. But then he went back to Gaul. And this was all part of his conquest of Gaul in the, in the 50s BC. So uh, Caesar didn't really intend to stay in his two invasions. I think they were sort of almost PR exercises. However, you then have the AD 43 invasion of Claudius, uh, who... Um, uh, put in charge of it Aulus Plautius, who's one of his leading uh, governors um, on the Danube at the time with some crack legions. And then late, much later, you have the invasion of Britain by uh, Constantius Chlorus, the father of Constantine, who um, in AD 296 invaded Britain to drag uh, Britain again back into the empire from another usurpation, this time by Carausius. Um, who I call in my book on him, the Pirate King. So therefore, you have four Roman invasions of Britain. Caesar 1, 55 BC. Caesar 2, 54 BC. Claudius, AD 43. And then Constantius Claudius, um, uh, AD um, 296. Four invasions. Not all four of them invasions. successful. Four, not all four of them. Roman invasions. Uh, not four all of them four invasions. Depends, depends what you mean by successful. I mean, Caesar came, Caesar came and saw... But didn't conquer. Isn't okay. that I came, I saw, I went? Uh, I came, I saw, I conquered was in the context of um, fighting in Anatolia. But actually, if you look at what he did in Britain, basically he came over but didn't stay. So he came over twice. He claimed it was successful. He wrote about it. We read about it in, in his Gallic conquest. And, and, you know, it looks all wonderful. But the bottom line is he didn't stay over winter. So he didn't stay. So maybe successful, maybe not successful. Certainly Claudius was successful because in AD 43 he comes over and then creates the Roman province of Britannia. And then finally you get Constantius Chlorus defeating um, the usurper Carausius who comes over in 296. So just a really stupid question, just continuing on for this. Are there any remnants of Roman legacy from these invasions? Uh, in terms of, well, absolutely, actually, if you go to Richborough, so Richborough is the Saxon shore fort on the East Kent coast. 
Um, and Saxon Shore means it's much later, probably actually built by the use of Crawls, as a natural fact. Um, but within it, it's like a time machine of Roman Britain because you've got loads of interesting and different things all over the place. And crucially, in the middle of it, you've got some of the very earliest archaeology in, in Roman Britain because you have the remnants of the invasion ditches built to defend the first marching camps built by Aulus Plautius when he led the Claudian invasion in AD 43. So you have these two huge um, sort of parallel ditches which would have defended the Romans as they landed in AD 43. So they are physically there. You can actually see them. Richborough is an amazing place. If you ever get a chance to go, do go, because it really is a time machine. (laughs) Okay, one thing I, even in this state, that I'm quite confident of is that Roman roads, we can still see evidence of those, can't we? So... We've all seen the meme about British built roads versus Roman built roads. Is there any truth in it? And are, I mean, like, so Edgware Road is basically the old Roman road coming into London, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, basically, the, road, the Romans built a huge, I'll tell you what, the, the, the way to look at it is like this. The Romans invaded Britain in AD 43 in the third invasion, to link back to the previous question. Uh, they didn't actually, um, conquer the province up to the line of what they became Hadrian's Wall from the time to the Solway Firth um, until the time of Agricola. So you're talking about 40 years later. So it took the Romans 40 years to gradually conquer the territory of Britain up to that frontier line. And even then they then tried to go further and were never successful. Um, but because they spent 40 odd years conquering the sort of the province of Britannia, um, they have a series of stop lines Okay, so you have a campaigning season and then a stop line. Um, so one of the stop lines, for example, is called the Fossway Frontier because it later became the Fossway, one of the Roman roads, which broadly runs from Lincoln through to Exeter. Um, and when they built these stop lines, they built forts on them, usually on rivers. And a lot of those forts later became, because of their vicar civilian settlements, the major towns of modern Britain. And then they're all linked by Roman roads. So if I was to take you from the southeast to the northwest, looking at which towns were originally Roman forts or cities were originally Roman forts, um, you have Exeter, you have Gloucester, you have Roxeter, you have Chester, you have Caerleon, you have Cardiff, you have Leicester, you have Manchester, you have York, you have Carlisle, and you have Newcastle, etc., etc., etc. All originally Roman forts and all linked by these trunk roads. And those trunk roads because they were so well built, became the major roads in medieval Britain. And then they became the basis for the A road network, which was the principal road network before the motorways. So as an example, Alex, you have the um, line of the A1, the Great North Road, which is Ermit Street, and then it's Northern Extension from York Deer Street into Scotland. So that that's a Roman road. You have Watling Street, which is the uh, A2 in Kent, going from Richborough through to Rochester through to Southwark. That crosses over the Thames at Southwark, over the original London Bridge, into London. And then as it exits London, it exits as the City Road, the Euston Road, and then the A5. And it goes all the way up to the Welsh Marches. That's Watling Street. That's the Roman Road. But the Fossway I've already mentioned, which crosses over, um, uh, has a crossroads with Watling Street uh, in uh, a place called High Cross, which is in Leicestershire, which is basically the heart of Roman 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 Britain, and so on and so forth. So you have all these forts which became towns, all linked by this network of trunk roads, military trunk roads, more or less military trunk roads, which later becomes the A road network of um, modern Britain. So it's all there, literally all there. If you were to drive from from Richborough 
to Canterbury, pick up the A2 to Rochester, to Southwark, through central London, City Road, Euston Road, A5, and upon the Welsh borders, you're on a Roman road the whole way. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. That's mental. Beneath your feet, literally beneath your feet or your car wheels, all there. I was going to make a joke for the next question. I don't know how well it's going to come out. So kind of <laughs> bear with me a little bit on this one. I, I thought it was funny yesterday, but I don't know how funny it's going to be today. This is a word Alex doesn't like. Actually, many of our listeners don't like this word, but Brexit. You bring this word up in your book. Now, not just a modern day term, because you talk about how Roman Britain ended, but wouldn't it be far more funny to call it Romexit? <laughs> Rome exit. Well, actually, actually, I mean, it's, it's really, it's genuinely interesting. Actually, if you look at the process of Brexit, right, because um, you have the Roman presence in Gaul, Germany, and Spain and Italy in the imperial centre, and the Roman presence in Britain. The way that the Roman presence in Britain ended was very different to the way it ended on the continent. So, firstly, in Britain, it's earlier. And then secondly, uh, because uh, towards the end of the Roman period, you have a lot of intense uh, raiding down the east coast and south coast from German raiders from the far north of Germany. That's very relevant. Um, You have a depopulation event. So along the east coast of Britain towards the end of the Roman period and through the south, a lot of people leave. They either move to the west of uh, Britain or they move back to Gaul. Um, the Amorican Peninsula, which also was depopulated at that time, um, was repopulated by fleeing Britons, which is where the name Brittany comes from. It's called Brittany because it's where the Britons ran to. So on the east coast and the south coast of Britain, you have a depopulation event at the end of the Roman period. There's no evidence anybody was living within the land walls of Roman London after AD 410. It was abandoned. So that's how big a depopulation event we're talking about. Okay, So that's there. And then... Um, with the depopulated uh, sort of like east and south coast, you get the original Germans coming in. So what I was taught as the Angles and Saxons and Dukes and so on when I was at school a long time ago. And they start settling because there's no one living there, really. It's, it's, it's easy to settle there. And also they don't take over any Roman infrastructure when they arrive because there's none left because the Romans have gone. And further... These Germans who are arriving here, the Angles and Saxons and Jutes, are from the far north, so the far, far north of Germany. They're not from the Rhine or Danube frontiers, the Goths and, um, and the Ostrogoths, the Visigoths, uh, the Vandals, etc., Franks, who knew the Roman ways because they lived along the Roman frontiers anyway. They came from the far north and didn't know the Roman ways. So even if there was any Roman infrastructure to take over, they wanted to know what to do with it. So you have a complete sort of change in Britain from the end of the Roman period where the German invaders come in, they start settling and then over 200 years scour east to west and you end up with England, effectively. Okay, Uh, Anglo-Saxon Britain, as it were. On the continent, though, it's very, very different. So that's the first Brexit, uh, Britain's first Brexit. On the continent, it's different. Um, When the Romans begin sort of like 
stopping running chunks of the Western Empire on the continent, let's say in Gaul and, and Spain and Italy, what tends to happen is that the Germans who come in, the Austro-Goths, Visigoths, Franks, the elite levels of their society take over from the elite Roman level of society because the infrastructure is still there, but they keep everything else in place. Because why wouldn't they? Because basically they can use the Roman system of taxation to make huge amounts of money. So that stays the same. And that's really important because you have a schism between the end of Roman Britain and post-Roman Britain. It's completely different. But on the continent, it's not. Because the infrastructure, the levels below the elite levels of society stay the same. That's why on the continent, you have Romance-based languages based on Vulgar Latin, French. Italian, Spanish. That's why you have the Catholic Church. That's why you have law codes based on the Roman Twelve Tables law codes. Direct links back to the Roman Empire. They're through the strongest threads in the world in which we live today, back to the world of Rome. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. It's mad. It's like when you start digging in to how much of it, how uh, like the legacy of Rome and how deep it runs it's it's epic let's move away from britain alina move away from britain i thought i already moved away from britain i moved you away from britain let's do it carry on take us somewhere else missed my joke i thought i was going to be funny there but it's okay (laughs) oh because you move no that's far too deep for me (laughs) okay yeah no we moved away because i've women usually talk about rome we talk about Britain, we talk about Gaul, France, we talk about Rome itself, Pompeii, all those regions, the Mediterranean. And I kind of thought we don't often talk about, you know, moving towards the east. Occasionally we talk about Africa. To be honest, we haven't done much Africa. Could have done that here, but I prefer this region anyway. So let's talk about some of the Roman archaeology, um, the, the things that have happened in these regions, because it's not just settlements, for example, there's war and constant war. We just don't, we don't talk about it. Talk us about what is happening in this region. If you go right back to the, to, to sort of the period of the Roman Republic, when it's beginning to sort of expand the Roman Empire, uh, in the Western Mediterranean, the, the, the bad guys from the Roman perspective, the Carthaginians, um, who the Romans defeat sequentially over the, the three Punic Wars. In the Eastern Mediterranean, it's all the various Hellenistic kingdoms who are the successor states to Alexander the Great. The, the, the really interesting thing there is that these successor states to, to the Empire of Alexander the Great, so uh, the Kingdom of Macedon itself, uh, Ptolemaic Egypt, the Seleucid Empire in Syria uh, and modern Iraq, 
uh, etc. They were incredibly rich, incredibly, incredibly rich. And that proved a massive draw for various Roman um, leaders. I call them warlords in one of my books, actually, late Roman warlords, who were all drawn to to win victories in the East, to, to sort of access all this fabulous wealth. And gradually, with this aggressive expansion through the Hellenistic uh, Eastern Mediterranean, the Romans built out what later became the sort of the Eastern Roman Empire. Uh, so you've got the frontier uh, running uh, through Cappadocia in Eastern Turkey, You've got the frontier running uh, along the um, Syrian um, through on the, on the Syrian border, uh, and then you've got the frontier running through Arabia as well. So you've got this eastern frontier, and there sequentially you're faced by a variety of enemies. But principally, you have the Parthians, who are who are based in sort of modern Iran and uh, eastern Iraq, later replaced by the Sassanid Persians. And, and the Parthians and the Sasani Persians are the only opponents the Romans had actually in the high empire stage anyway, who I would call symmetrical as a threat. That means that they're the same quality um, one for one. So it doesn't rely on numbers of opponents to defeat the Romans. It's the fact that the Sasani Persians and early the Parthians were probably as good as the Romans. Uh, and the Romans never conquered them, really. I mean, they, they, they invaded the, 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 the Parthians, Persians invaded the Rome, invaded the world of Rome many times. And uh, the Romans invaded the Parthians and sunny Persian world many times, but neither really knocks the other, other out as a sort of a principal opponent. So you have conflict in the East all the time there. It's very interesting, actually, when, when um, Octavian was acknowledged as Augustus for the first time um, in 27 BC, he started casting around at what he could do to uh, make himself highly successful and become highly successful over and above being the winner of the final phase of the civil wars. And we have the poet Horace saying that Augustus will only be a god if he defeats the pesky Britons and the pesky Persians. So if you wanted to have a battle anywhere in the, the Roman Empire or, or, or earlier Republic, and you wanted to pick some frontier, you've either got the far north of Britain, never conquered, and always the east, always conflict in the east. And if- scars has that left in terms of if you're to go to these places now i mean we're talking about the levant aren't we and in the levant um it's, it's a place of conflict throughout history because it's this this transition between um sort of east and west yeah. trading routes and everything so people are always trying to control it uh, and one of the threads i talk about in the book is actually um how the creation of the modern state of israel uh, is linked to this roman past because you can um, look at the three Jewish revolts um, against the Romans. The last one, the Bar Kokhba revolt, was a sort of a, a Masonite revolt. And all of them were incredibly sanguineous on both sides, incredibly sanguineous. And when Hadrian defeated the Bar Kokhba revolt, the third Jewish revolt, he basically sort of um, um, cemented in place the, the sort of Jewish diaspora. And some people make the case that the creation of the modern state of Israel is directly linked to that uh, in that it's an attempt to put right which the Romans did wrong by effectively setting in place this diaspora. It's really important, very important. There is an emperor that you've mentioned quite a few times in your book and you've got to bear with me because this 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 emperor period I know very little about. Just okay. to be honest, I couldn't really be bothered to read much about it. Yeah, I'm going to admit that. Um and it's Emperor Septimus uh, Severus, not Severus Snake people, but Septimus Severus. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about him because he's really important in the East, isn't he? 
he's, what's interesting is important all across the empire. I've actually been very fortunate this year. I've um, spent time on the southern Limes, Limes, so the southern frontier in Algeria on the Saharan fringe. And I've spent time just back from Hadrian's Wall, actually. And everywhere you go, there's a Severan phase. So he's one of these emperors where not everybody knows about him, but actually he's very, very important because everywhere he went, he made a physical impact. I mean, if you go to Rome, for example, the Forum Romanum, um, the Temple of Vesta there, the, 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 the one you see today, that is basically the rebuilt version that his wife, Julia Domna, built. If you go to the Palatine Hill, a lot of the buildings there are called the Severan buildings. So most of the Roman uh, palace that you see on the Palatine Hill is Severan. If you stand on that viewing platform over the, over the um, Circus Maximus, the Hippodrome in front of you, and you look down, that platform is basically where the Severan platform was. So you're standing where Severus was. And if you look in the shimmering distance in the heat haze from that platform, you see the Baths of Caracalla sort of on the outskirts of Rome. Um, Caracalla was his son. Severus started building the Baths of Caracalla, which became the Baths of Caracalla. So they should have been called the Baths of Septimius Severus. So, so Severus had a huge, huge impact everywhere. And again, everywhere I went in um, on the Sahara fringe uh, in Algeria, all the towns and cities there, they all had this incredible Severan phase. That's because he's a very important emperor. He became the emperor. Uh, he was born in Leptis Magna in North Africa, um, in the sort of like the heat of a the heat of a, a, a spring um, in North Africa, to the richest family in the richest part town, Leptis Magna, in the richest part of the Roman Empire, North Africa. So basically, he 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 was almost born to greatness, but he then followed up in a major league way by becoming. The emperor at the point of the sword in the year of the nine emperors, uh, five, sorry, year of the five emperors in AD 193. And then from that point until he dies in York, um, in AD uh, 211, he, he, he basically stays the emperor at the point of the sword. He's the one who famously told his, um, sons Caracalla and Gita to ignore everybody apart from your family and the military. So he, he basically was a military strongman and he fought all over the place. He never liked being in Rome and, and fought two major campaigns actually in the east. Um, one before he defeated the usurpation of Clodius Albanus, which I linked to London, and then the one after that, and one after that, and, and the one after that was very successful because he actually managed to sack the, the the Parthian capital, and then he built a huge monumental arch to celebrate it in the Forum Romanum, which is the Arch of Septimius Severus today, which you can go and see. So all the imagery on this is celebrating his victory. So he fought in the east. It then came back through North Africa and everywhere he went, as I've seen, you have a Severan building phase and he expanded the frontier there. Then he went back to Rome and then towards the end of his life, he uh, he got a message from the British um, governor, Senecio in London, um, probably about 8206, 207, saying that we've got trouble in the north. The province is about to be overrun. By the way, the phrase used is the province is about to be overrun. It's a big deal. Um, and so he spends the last few years of his life in Britain and he invades Scotland, 209, modern Scotland, 209 to 10 twice. Second time declares a genocide, which actually from the archaeology appears to have been a real one because there's depopulation for about a century afterwards. And there's very little conflict on the northern border, again, for the majority of the rest of the century. Then goes back to York in 211 and dies in the freezing cold of a British spring, February, well, British winter, February 8211. So think about that story arc. Born into uh, the richest family in the richest part of North Africa in the heat of a North African, um, North African spring and then dies in the freezing cold of a northern British winter in York in 82 
that's mental no and actually uh, alex you can go and stand where he died oh really you know like the exact spot more or less yeah if you go to um york minster so yeah. so so york was a legionary fortress yeah by nine hispana and later occupied by six victrix and in the middle of a legionary fortress like any roman fort you have two key buildings the principia which is the headquarters building and next to it, the Praetorium, which is the boss's house. So when Severus came to Britain for the last few years of his life, he brought his entire family with him, Julie Domina, Caracalla and Gita. He brought key senators, brought the Imperial Fiscus Treasury, uh, and he brought all his main advisors. So effectively, he turned York into the imperial capital of the whole Roman Empire for the last few years of his life. And he would have lived in the Praetorium, because that's the boss's house. And the Praetorium today is, the, is in the undercroft of York Minster. That's amazing. You can go down there. I'm so going to do that. Um, that conflict doesn't end with him, though, does it? How does it all end? Well, it doesn't really. I mean, the, the Romans tried properly to conquer the... The Romans never conquered the far north of Britain, which I pull out as another example in my book as something important to the world today. Um, that The Romans tried to conquer what we call today Scotland in a, in a major way twice. Once by uh, a governor called Agricola, and then went through Septimius Severus. So Septimius Severus um, would have been 209 to uh, 211. And then Agricola earlier, in the late, 80, late 80s, 70s, early 80s. Both times they made significant progress, but both times they ultimately failed. With Severus, the last one, because he died, and his sons Caracalla and Geese couldn't wait to get back to Rome. And in fact, that's where famously, at the end of 211, Caracalla kills Gita in Rome, stabs him to death, allegedly, and Gita, the younger son, dies bleeding in his mother's arms. So clearly they didn't listen to Severus telling them, look after your family. Um, and at that point, the Romans lose the political imperative to stay in the far north and the, the frontier drops back down to Hadrian's Wall. Early with Agricola, Agricola probably did, for the only time, conquer more or less the whole of the main island of Britain because he got as far as the Moray Firth north of Aberdeen, defeated the Caledonians there in the Battle of uh, Mons Graupius, and then ordered the Classic Britannica regional fleet to circumnavigate Britain, which is a big deal. Okay, And that's when you have the monumental arch built at Richborough by his emperor Domitian to celebrate um, the conquest of the whole of Britain. But again, just like Severus later, Domitian uh, wasn't interested really in Britain and basically ordered Agricola to come home. And gradually over the next 20 years, the Roman troops in the far north, who could claim they'd conquered the whole of the island, gradually dropped down to the, the line of Hadrian's Wall. So therefore, apart from the brief incorporation of the Scottish borders within the Antonine War for a few years, um, with the far north of Britain never fully conquered, it's never part of the story of um, the province of Roman Britain. And so in terms of a modern political settlement, Scotland's gone its own way. Similarly, Agricola at one stage uh, in his campaigns to conquer Scotland was actually based on the Solway Firth on the west coast above um, the Lake District and asked permission from Domitian the Emperor, can I invade Ireland? And Domitian said no. So the one time the Romans could have also conquered Ireland, they didn't do it because the emperor wasn't interested. And therefore, you know, Ireland has its own story as well. So these are all threads going back, as per my book, to the world of Rome. It's amazing, all these things all around you that people don't realise. Did you know it was going to be like this when you started writing it? A, a, a bit. But I mean, the, the some of the things, if you know you know, know your Roman Britain or, or, or the Roman Empire or the Roman Republic, 
are fairly well known, but but others aren't, and you almost like end up going down rabbit burrows and um, finding something new and something new and something new. So, I mean, one of the one of the areas which I I, I looked at, which was fresh to me, and very relevant, given I've spent almost a month in Algeria this year looking at the Roman world there, um, was North Roman North Africa. Um, so, one of the points I make in the book is the the reason why. One of the reasons, I think, why North Africa is part of the Islamic world and not part of um, sort of the, the, the Western European, uh, the Western European world is because the Arab conquest, when it went through North Africa, um, what they were doing, they were very cleverly turning the tables of the Romans against them using their own infrastructure. So instead of um, destroying everything, they just incorporated stuff as they went from Egypt, then Kyrenia, then Libya, then Algeria, then Morocco and, and Tunisia, etc. Wherever you're going, um, they just incorporated it, everything that they they came across into their own world of the Arab conquest, um, and therefore, instead of destroying things, exactly as in Europe, where the elites were replaced by Franks and Goths. You have Arab conquest elites replacing the Roman elites, but just everything carries on. So it's, it's really interesting, actually. That was new to me, and I found it fascinating, especially, Alex, because I then spent almost a month in Algeria. So I could see things physically, which I was writing about. And one of the great things about this book, actually, it's beautifully illustrated. I've got some amazing um, pictures of places in Roman cities and the Atlas Mountains. There's one place that looks like it's out of Flash Gordon. It's like a city built on top of a mountain. Uh, and, and on overhangs down the side of the mountain. Well, it's originally a Roman city. Um, so the books have got loads and loads of illustrations of things like that as well. It's amazing. Simon, I want to come back to the East because, as we very well know, there's always two sides of the story and we've got plenty of Roman sources and things like that. But do Persian sources tell the same story? Do they match? Is there any difference? Fantastic question, sourcing, isn't it? Because um, as historians, I'm all, as a historian, I'm always keenly aware that I'm relying heavily all the time on classical sources, and a lot of what we know about the people the Romans fought and beat. I mean, I'm writing right now, I'm writing writing about that um, from a, a Roman perspective. So I always try and seek out alternative views. And actually, there's an amazing body of work of Sasanid Persian literature which you can access. And it was interesting correlating the two where I was looking at Roman sources and Sasanid Persian sources to see um, how you could get to the truth by 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 sort of cross-referencing things. To, to be honest, actually, most of the time, the, the Romans were sort of more or less on the mark. They weren't particularly grandiose about what they were doing in the East because often they didn't win. The thing about the Romans to remember is that they, they when they lost, they were very good at learning from the, the mistakes and then coming back and winning in the longer term, they were very good at doing that. Um, and so often what they're writing about in the East, or that's from our own perspective, a lot of it's pretty accurate. And then I just correlated it with um, sort of Sassanid Persian sources and things like that. I want to ask, finally, uh, in terms of minority groups in that, so let's pick Jews, um, what kind of legacy did the Romans leave among Jewish communities at the time? Well, over the period of the three Jewish revolts, the Romans absolutely devastated Judea and the Jewish populations in the region, either through um, fighting and killing them or massacring them or taking prisoners or taking slaves and destroying settlements, etc. So actually that had a huge impact 
yeah. huge and brutally negative impact on the story of the Hebrew peoples sort of in Judea. And, and in actual fact, I mean, one of the things you find in the second Jewish revolt, actually, is the people who are doing the revolting odds in Judea, they're Jewish populations elsewhere around the Mediterranean who've gone there because of earlier persecution. And there you're revolting against the Romans as well. The, the Romans lost whole legions fighting the Jewish revolts. I mean, it's incredibly sanguineous. Um, so, so absolutely, yeah, the, the, the Roman impact on, on, on the, the Hebrew population in Judea was absolutely, totally, brutally negative. Well, hmm. I want to kind of dig into that more, if you know. Um, into what, what does that mean then rolling forward? Does it mean that, uh, Judaism may have been a much more dominant religion had they not done that? Or have we got any sort of sense on how it's rolled down through the years? Difficult to say, but you can. I, I definitely draw a, draw, draw a direct link between the, the Hadrian's brutal putting down of the Third Jewish Revolts uh, mm-hmm. in the AD, AD 130s and the creation of the modern uh, state of Israel, ju- just because um, uh, you could, uh, people have argued that that is putting right a wrong created by the Romans. So that's that, that's again a very big deal. So everywhere you go in the Roman Empire, I've, 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 and I'm taking you on a big tour, yeah. um, you have um, Britain's first Brexit, uh, you have uh, the Catholic Church, you have Roman law, and you have the Romance languages in the imperial centre. So Italy, Spain, France, etc. You have uh, the Romans completely reframing uh, the Levants because of the conflicts with the Persians and the conflicts uh, in the Jewish revolts. You have the Roman infrastructure allowing the Arab conquest to take place in the way it did through North Africa. So you have an Islamic um, North Africa. So everything, everything there, all those things are linked. There's one other actually I've not mentioned as well, which is worth throwing in there, Alex, and that's on the Danubian frontier. So again, the Romans separated the empire out from the time of Diocletian, well, um, Diocletian, um, onwards um you have a formal split sort of between the eastern and western empires and that split broadly went through the balkans and broadly you can make the case that you have a a western facing uh catholic croat based um uh west in the balkans and then sort of a serbian greek orthodox eastern facing East in the Balkans, well, the, the, the dividing line broadly from that Roman separation goes through the middle of the Balkans. So even that is linked directly to the Roman past as well. All these fundamental building blocks in our life and our world, Roman roads, Roman towns and cities, Roman language, Roman religion, Roman law codes, the geographic um, demarcation of countries in Europe today are all directly linked back to the world of Rome. I've not even spoken about things like um, architecture and art. I'm just talking about the very physical things that all yeah. link back to the world of Rome. Go on then. So like, we've done the questions that we wrote, but if we were going to stop this interview now, what what would you have wanted to talk about that we haven't brought up? Um, that sort of thing. I mean, the, actually, the great questions. I mean, they're all great questions. Uh, anything that we missed? I don't think so, actually. I think I've thrown everything in for you. I think I've just basically done my usual trick of um, 
riffing on every question you ask me. <laughs> which we love you for because yeah. there is no riffing going on with us today at all <laughs> we are incapable <laughs> lena's just shaking her head uh, simon thank you so much for coming on to talk to us about your new book on the legacy of ancient rome we have got it in our bookshop online please buy it on there and nowhere else because you know the drill he gets money we get money independent bookshops get money and amazon don't get any money so every everyone's a winner apart from the amazon dude but he's earning something like a, a million dollars every minute anyway so screw him as, as always you're amazing thank you for having me we'll see you again soon no doubt you've probably written another five books at the moment uh, and when the next one comes out he'll be back uh, absolutely absolutely talk to you later guys our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack, or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.